Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. For some, they come in with the tide. For others, they sail forever on the same horizon, never out of sight, never landing until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men. Now, women forget all the things they don't want to remember and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. Friends, lovers, exes, here we are together again. It's season two of the big D. In this case, D is for divorce. But really, it's a podcast for anyone who's ever been in love and ever broken up. A serious topic with a not entirely serious host. It's me, Miranda. This season is, dare I say it, risking the uh, feelings of my past guests. Even better. Okay, listen. I'm a more confident interviewer. Before, I was hiding too much. I was worried about being in the interviews too much. I trust myself more. And as a result, something really special has happened. Themes coming up in my interviews as I've been recording this spring and summer are all aligning. The arc of the season is, well, let's just say it's kismet. And then in that case, I don't think I can take credit for any of it. Those opening lines are the first paragraphs from an incredible book, Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. In this episode, I'm interviewing some of my favorite people, Carlos Andres Gomez and Jeff Pereira, and we talk about helpful and unhelpful ideas of manhood and how they influence relationships and, of course, breakups. These unhelpful ideas of masculinity are not intrinsic to men or masculine people. So we talk a lot about character and qualities, what underpins gut reactions, and how we can do things differently. Every time I've listened through while I've been editing, I've learned something new or heard something again a different way. This conversation was like a healing balm. Carlos and Jeff together are the perfect messengers, and I'm thrilled and entirely honored to be kicking off the season with them. Here are their official introductions. Carlos Andres Gomez is a Colombian-American poet, speaker, and equity and inclusion strategist from New York City. A star of HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam and the Spike Lee film Inside Man. Sorry, I should have said Spike Lee Joint. Inside Man with Denzel Washington, Gomez's poetry collection Fractures, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2020 was selected by Natasha Trethaway as the winner of the 2020 Felix Pollock Prize in Poetry, winner of the Forward Indies Gold Medal and the International Book Award for Poetry. Gomez has been published in New England Review, Beloit Poetry Journal, the Yale Review, and elsewhere, many other places. 
Carlos is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College. For more, to find out everything about Carlos, check out carloslive.com or find him on the internet at Carlos AG Live. Since 2008, Jeff Pereira has been working to help build bridges between us. A renowned speaker and facilitator having spoken across North America about our construction of gender, helpful versus harmful ideas of manhood, and inspiring men towards empathy building, facing hard truths, and helping end gender-based violence, Jeff encourages men and young men to be the lesson in action and strive to become models of possibility for other men. Jeff has delivered two TEDx talks, Words Speak Louder Than Actions, Looking at the Power of Gendered Words, and The Ladder of Manhood, which explores the male pursuit of identity and how too many men are fluent in the language of violence. Jeff started the website HireUnlearning.com as an online space to explore how our ideas of masculinity impact all of us. You can find written pieces and also hear, read, or watch media appearances, interviews, or news articles Jeff has been a part of at HireUnlearning.com. Okay, let's get into it. Hi, Carlos. Hi, Jeff. Hey. So good to see your faces. Wonderful to see you, Miranda. Thank you so much for inviting me and us on. This is so great. Carlos is joining from Atlanta, ATL, and Jeff is my neighbor, you know, neighbor-ish. We live in Toronto together, and we are talking about masculinity and breakups today. I'm so looking forward to this conversation, and the three of us, I guess, kind of like nerd out on this a lot, and we, we met because of our shared interest in talking about masculinity with anyone and everyone. So what is our meet cute? Jeff, do you remember? Do you even remember? I'll try to keep it short because you don't want this to be a three-part episode. So in 2008, I was, I was involved in the human rights-related work at what was formerly called Ryerson University. Thankfully, that name has changed. It's now the Toronto Metropolitan University in Canada. I was, you know, a mature student who wanted to help change the world and ambitious and foolish. So I reached out to Dr. Jasmine Zine, who is an incredible, brilliant professor at Wilfrid Laurier University here in Canada. I was at the beginning of my work around men and masculinities. And she's like, you should, I'm bringing this speaker poet named this guy, Carlos. You need to find out about him. It was unfortunately during the student union elections, but uh, so 20 people showed up. But Carlos performed as if it was 2,000 people, and that stayed with me. And he just had was just a genuine, real person. I um, was very, again, ambitious. And for the 20th anniversary of the Montreal Massacre here in Canada, I wanted to say to the university, we're not going to do the, the thing that we always do, which is uh, have a memorial, light candles, and drink hot chocolate, and then go off. And that's what we did every year. I said no. And so, you know, of course, male privilege and all these different things. And that's what I'm going to allude to. But I said, let's hold 20 events to recognize the 20th anniversary. And the staff, administration, faculty who are part of that committee were like, uh, what? 20 events? Good luck with that. I was like, okay. So I got students together and we did it. And one of those events 
I believe this is where we met Miranda. It was in the business school and either it was a panel that I was on or I organized. And I remember Miranda came up to me afterwards and she was just like, yeah, let's change the world. And that was her energy. And we started coordinating and running events around, you know, men ending violence against women, gender equality and men trying to do better. And one of the things I learned through that process was, you know, we were talking about this before, you know, the world is on fire, but a lot of progressive movements were kind of like at the fire station and we're arguing about which hose to use. And sometimes someone like my phrase is we, someone needs to drive the bus. But I think at the same time, it's recognizing that driving the bus means you don't run over. And I think one of the things I learned is that I was not as collaborative as I could have been in these efforts. Miranda had to like, just, you know, we were both babies back then, but she was trying to figure out how to like rein in this rhino, Jeff, who has all these ideas and things he wants to do. What I've learned is that that's how you build and sustain and grow relationship. And that's part of the, the process and learning how to do this together. So there you go. That's how we met y'all. <laughs> wow. Your your memory is amazing. And also it seemed like you had that scripted, but I know you didn't. That was beautiful. <laughs> thank well, you I mean, I probably me. thought about it. Obviously. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I really appreciate that. I know I wasn't at that performance, that first performance, Carlos, that you did, but it's it's amazing. Jeff described you to me that same, that exact same way that you performed like it was to 2000 people, even though it was 20, like that stands out in my memory before I had met you. But that was the like introduction to you. But I do remember Jess, you and I getting in a car and going to Waterloo and having a dinner in Jasmine's house, I think. Like there was just like a little dinner, but at that point in time, like, I don't even think I really knew you, Jeff. And then I met Carlos there, I think. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. That sounds right. Was that the first time we met at, 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 uh, at, at Jasmine's house? I, I, you know, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, it's definitely been, I've definitely known both of you for well over a decade. Absolutely. And I think for me, it's sort of like the, the thing that I'm most struck by with both of you are, are specific things about your energy and what I, what I saw in you that I think I was very compelled by and, and drawn to. I mean, Jeff, obviously we first met when I went to the university now formerly called Ryerson. And <clears throat> I remember like, I remember just being struck by how tender, passionate, driven, thoughtful, and just like a kind person you were. And I think all those qualities I just described, I think it's rare that I find those things in one person and extremely rare for me to find them in in a man. And I'm sure Miranda could probably, I see Miranda nodding right now. You all can't see this because you're just listening. That's something that I was very struck by. I, mean, I remember the first time I met Jeff, I... I knew that you were somebody that I wanted in my life for my whole life, even if we never did anything collaboratively ever again. I was like, I want to be your friend. And then Miranda, I don't, again, don't remember the first time I met you, but I remember being struck by, these are the qualities I think of when I think of when I first met you. You were fierce, 
you were courageous, you were vulnerable, you were charismatic. Again, I think I'm very drawn by people who have a combination of qualities that I think embody the kind of qualities that I aspire toward. And I think both of you have that. I just remember you speaking to the audience at this event and you were super vulnerable and courageous. And I don't know, I just, I was like, gosh, I love this woman. I want to like know her and be her friend. I hope I see her again too. We'll see, you know, Jeff just put up a heart, you know? So I think, uh, you know, we were talking before about, about just the last two and a half years and about what that's been like dealing with fragmentation, isolation, being away from people, not physically being in space with people. But I'll just say that, that Miranda and Jeff are two people that I know that I want in my life, whether or not I physically see you all or we talk every week. Well, I think you just gave like a masterclass in words of affirmation as a love language. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to go float off now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That was, that was so kind. And I feel like, you know, there are people in my life that I have so much respect and love for, and I miss both of your presence in my life. You know, like I'm, I miss like, I miss that and our dynamic and all the things that we can talk about with a shared understanding where we don't have to kind of like explain things or give a preamble to something we're about to say to couch it because we're worried about how it's going to be perceived and and I value that so much and also just both of you how passionate you both are about about what you do I think anyone is lucky to be in the presence of people who are so passionate about what they do yeah if you find the you know you get it you get me people in your life you've got to hold on to them yeah yeah. So we're going to be talking about masculinity. How did you find yourselves talking about masculinity in the public space? Jeff, do you want to go? I will begin. So I grew up in a home of domestic violence and uh, you know my my parents immigrated to Canada in the early 70s, they'd moved from Sri Lanka to England and then moved from England to, to Toronto. And, uh, you know, my father struggled with his accent and trying to fit in and belong and all these different things, you know, like, I remember just this one moment where I was in the backseat of a car, I, I think I was probably six, and we we're at a shopping mall, and my father's outside of the car, my mom's in the shotgun seat. And uh, my father's arguing with a drunk white dude. And it's not physical, but they're arguing. And then my father gets in the car and slams the door behind him. And he had my father's his hands on the steering wheel. And this drunk white guy is on the, you know, outside banging the window. You know, get out here, you packy, you know, like just going off. And my father has his hands on the steering wheel and he's trembling. But not in rage, like I was used to seeing him at home doing, you know, and I realized he was afraid. He was scared. And, I, you know, you process things as a little child, just like an adult does. You don't have the language to describe it. You don't know what it is you're seeing, but you're seeing it vividly, clearly. I was able to kind of 
put that together and think, well, my father's like Godzilla at home, but here with a man, his equal, it's different, you know? And, you know, my mom cracked open the car window and yelled like, get out of here. And I think the drunk guy realized it was a wife and kid in the car and he just kind of stumbled off. And that began this journey for me. Cause I remember thinking in that moment, like what's wrong with my dad throughout my growing up, I was tuned into the realities of women and girls and gender diverse people. And also asking that question, like what's going on with us as men? Like I grew up in a poor neighborhood in Toronto, kids from all around the world. And what we all had in common is we're struggling with this idea of being a man and what that means, what that looks like. Like when I was one-on-one with my male friends, they acted differently than when we're with the boys or around women, young women, classmates, that kind of thing. And that personal journey led to my professional journey as a mature student going back to university. And I attended a victims of violence panel. And um, at that point, I was working as a student at the human rights office on campus. This is like 2008. And um, there was, you know, only two people that attended that event that were men, the president of the students union and myself. So my boss was on the panel. So you could argue that we're both there for work. And one of the questions I asked the panel was like, how do we get more men to come out and be part of this conversation? So I I started that journey of trying to figure that out. And uh, that led to me doing talks and trainings and workshops around engaging men and helping end gender-based violence, but expanded to what I describe as uh, working towards helpful versus harmful ideas of manhood. And uh, I've been doing that work ever since. And uh, very thankful to do that met you both and met extraordinary people who are trying to do that work of creating what feels like you know going up against a mountain and chopping it down but that's the work we're doing together bit by bit so carlos you are an educator you're also an artist a performer I know you, you talk about so many different things, masculinity being one of them. How did you bring all of that together into your work? I think the way I found myself to the work that I do dealing with masculinity and engaging particularly men and boys um, to think more expansively about how they conceive of what manhood can look like. I was this very sensitive, emotional, passionate little boy who grew up in a cultural context that was just inundated with machismo and a lot of normalized violence, not in my home in the way that, that Jeff, you know, was, was speaking about, but, uh, you know, there was a lot of mundane, casual forms of violence that I think particularly people of, of my generation and in the cultural context that I grew up in, you know, things that uh, were, were not even noteworthy if they happened now at a school would be assault and a person would be taken to prison. I think about middle school, people would play games where they just like literally like grab each other's testicles and like twist, like in the hallway. That was like a game people played, you know, like, like that's assault. You know what I mean? Like they're like punching each other, like in the nuts. That was like another game, you know, um, you know, like pantsing somebody, right. You know what I mean? It was like, it was like wild. Um, but, but, uh, happened to girls too. Oh yeah. 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 No, no, yeah, no, I was like, like everybody, you know, it's like the eighties, you know, I guess, (laughs) but, but, but when I was younger, I think that in my childhood, I had a real 
this real conflict of identity. It was an existential crisis because I didn't have any alternative models of what masculinity could look like. There was no plural masculinities when I was a kid growing up in the 80s. It was you become this cartoon of one-dimensional, aggressive, predatory masculinity, and you conquer the world and win everything. And so I spent my whole childhood trying to deny the person I was and build myself into that really destructive caricature of masculinity. And I got to a point in my late teens where I was just extremely depressed and sort of riddled with anguish and despair because of this person that I had made myself in. And me discovering poetry and entering these artistic communities and the friends that I made there, the mentors that I found there started to really push back and challenge and allow me to start to unlearn and dismantle a lot of those things that I just took for granted or I thought were just the way things had to be. When I was 23 years old, and I feel like I was kind of on a precipice there, I was trying to really been fighting and wrestling with these other archetypes that I had been. I feel like I'd been several people and I was trying to step across this threshold. Again, not a threshold toward arrival, but toward, I think, finally trying to like assertively and deliberately break conformity with the ways that I'd learned manhood was supposed to exist based on the really damaging societal messaging and the cultural messaging I'd gotten growing up. I was asked to do this one hour long poetry performance at this theater festival in New York. I'd just done deaf poetry. I had like all these things where people were like, oh, we want to do anything, just come for an hour. And it was a theater festival. And I said, I want to write and then perform a one person show. I want to do a solo play that I write. And they were like, they're like the festival's in three and a half weeks. I was like, I don't care. I, I want to do it. They were like, that's impossible. And I was like, I just need a director. So I found this amazing director, Tamala Woodard, who's currently the, the chair of the theater department at Yale University and one of the most brilliant directors, actors, dramaturges on earth. <clears throat> and, she, and I told her my vision and she saw like the wild, hubristic, you know, confidence in my eyes. And she shook her head. She was like, you're, wow, that's absurd, but let's try it. And so I basically wrote this 70 minute play that largely centers around my relationship with my father and my relationships with people that have been my partners or have been like hookups or whatever. And it was just this raw, unfiltered look at my complicated, um, problematic journey with, with masculinity and to sort of finally trying to find my way to myself. And, you know, I mean, I think that was kind of the first step into this world. That was, that was 2007, um, spring of 2007. And, you know, my director, Tamla Woodard was like, what do you want to call this play? I said, I know what the title is. The title is the phrase that haunted my whole childhood and felt like it was the, this catalyst that always, that was such a, a, a source of shame. My whole life growing up, the title of the play is Man Up. And I was like, my mom, when I was little said, the way you kill a monster is you turn the lights on. 
And so I wanted to put that phrase in bright lights on the marquee and I wanted to kill that monster. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, was, that was what sort of started this journey, but very much on brand for those folks. If you've read my memoir, which is also called Man Up, which is different than the play, but it has the same title. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of my work is cataloging and excavating my own failings and my own fucked upness and my own, which I quickly learned was very different than a lot of the self-proclaimed male feminists who in many of the spaces I was in, in that era, which were overwhelmingly white men, cis men, straight men, credentialed men, affluent men. I found that people enjoyed tokenizing me, sharing my stories of the ways that I had embodied a lot of the things that other people critiqued. But they very rarely wanted to take the risk of sharing the ways that they had failed. And that was, a, that was to be honest, the reason I kind of stepped out of a lot of those rooms because I got tired of being tokenized. And, and to be clear, like I'm still excavating things. I can never unlearn fast enough, though I hope that it gives permission for people to, to try to work through and excavate the, the destructive ways they've moved through the world and also the destructive things that we've internalized as men. And then actually believe. And I think it's important for us to share the reasons why one day we wake up and we say, I don't want to participate in this anymore. And it's going to stop here. Thank you for both sharing that. I think the context is so important for the conversation. But right before I was recording, y'all were talking about how you want to run away from male feminists. So tell me... <laughs> why do you want to run away from male feminists and why do you not identify as male feminists or where how do you see your work as different and carlos i think you actually alluded to this a little bit in terms of like the uh the white academic elite spaces the tokenizing of certain experiences tell me more about wh- why you want to run away because i do too but i want to hear your take let me just, I'll start by saying that it's not coming from a place of like, you know, this kind of divisive energy. It's, I think what we're hungry right now for, I, th- I really feel a wave is going to come of authenticity, people craving genuine, real people. Like, and I think one of the challenges right now, like I describe it kind of like, if you think of feminism, like you know we talk about the waves of feminism it's like the bodies of water and this the waves of feminism can represent this body of water and i think for men who are we're trying to ask to come into the water step into the water they find the water is either too hot or too cold that's their perception it's too hot it's too the tension of the conversation wanting to say the right thing afraid to talk about the ways that I've disappointed, been hurtful or harmful, the ways I fucked up. Um, and then, or it's too cold as in, it's just not welcoming. It's not, it doesn't feel inviting for me, you know? And so I think a lot about how, you know, we, we need to find ways to invite and encourage men to kind of dive into the water. And you think about like emotional waters, you think about how a lot of us emotionally as men don't know how to swim. So this is the problem is like, wade into the water go in the shallow end start but what you're doing is that you know when you wade into the water it's kind of 
in the reflection of the water, you face, you know, yourself, you face hard truths. And that, that can, we perceive that as men as a threat, right? Like for men, vulnerability is a threat. And we only step into vulnerability if it's transactional, if I get laid or if I get something out of it. Um, so to step into the vulnerability for the purpose of growth, growth for myself and for people I don't even know, never mind like my sister, my wife, my daughter, da da da. It's like this is for women and gender diverse people I don't know, you know, and, and really facing what's going on. And I think we need people to model that. And what Carlos described in in his book and what he was attempting to do. I remember him talking about like the, the title of the book, how, you know, he didn't want it to be uh, this kind of like, I've, I, have, I have the cure. I figured it out. Like I'm on, you know, Carlos. And, I, and if I can say I, I, what I hope I come across as as well is that I'm not some expert. I'm just a guy trying to figure this out. I'm on the journey. Join me on this journey. To me, that's what a male feminist or whatever language you want to use should be. But the problem is you have people that get on stage and they have no problem with being perceived as perfect. They have no problem with this hierarchy. Like, you know, those men, these men are the problem versus saying we as men, us as men, I have, here's what I've done. Here's what I've learned about it. And I want you to learn from my mistakes and shortcomings and ways I've been disappointing uh, and hurtful and harmful. Yeah. And so that's kind of like that energy, like it can be with good intention you know, but I think, you know, there's a sex educator, Heather Elizabeth, who's awesome, who said, you know, the way you can tell, the way you can measure your good intention is how people show up for the impact, right? Like the impact of, if your intentions were good, you're going to show up for the impact of your intention, right? So, um, yeah, I, I think it's about, you know, modeling facing hard truths. I, um, one thing that's been really cool about knowing both of you for so long and in this space in particular is just seeing our journey and how we relate to this work and how we've changed our own language and relate to people differently now than we did 12 years ago. One big shift for me is when you have an intersection of privilege, you have to implicate yourself in the problem and be comfortable doing that. I think that that was such a great point to make about some people who call themselves male feminists is that they don't implicate themselves in the problem. Um, so thanks that that resonated with me a lot. Carlos, when we, we were talking about this before we hit record, you said that a lot of the men that you want to be in relationship with don't use those words. They don't identify with that language. Can you tell yeah, me about I, those men? Who, who are they? Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, there's so there's so many of them from, you know, my brother-in-law, Maurice, who's like one of the people I love most in this world, who's one of the most honorable, incredible examples of a man I've ever seen in my life. You know, to like my my father-in-law, my my own father, you know, I've never met anyone who's grown more in three decades than my father. To think about who he was 30 years ago and who he is now. I'm very compelled by that. I'm very inspired by that. And I think speaking of what Jeff said, and to be clear, there's so many people I've met in men and masculinities that I deeply love and I deeply care about. I mean, Jeff being one of them, there are so many others. Um, and to be clear, there are a lot of those that 
a lot of them that are academics that I actually really resonate with and care about. But I think I often in my life feel like an outsider. I moved a lot growing up. So I was always kind of the new kid who didn't have friends. And so I've always kind of felt like I was an outsider and been pretty comfortable with that. But uh, at the same time that I was entering that work in, the, in dealing with men and masculinities, uh, even before that, actually, I was working with people that, were, that, that are incarcerated. And so I spent many years going to Rikers Island in particular in New York, and I worked with the youngest population that's incarcerated there, which is actually children, it's 16 and 17-year-old boys that are locked up at the, in the Robert and Devoren complex on Rikers. And, you know, I was like, let's be, let's be clear. Like, I remember one time I, I would make sure I went around Christmas or around the holidays because that's when it's the most difficult time. I mean, it's the most tense time. It's the most violent time if you ever go to a prison or a jail because people are hurting. People are hurting. Kids are hurting. And so many of these kids that I would work with, they were, let's be clear, they were criminalized, the social construction of, crime that a lot of people have written about, they were criminalized for being poor, black, and brown. And a lot of them had come up through the foster care system and they criminalized them for like vagrancy. They criminalized them for skipping school. There's that ages when they, they, they weren't making a choice to miss school, you know, like they were criminalized for like not having ID on them. They didn't have an ID, you know, all these things. And then when you, when you add that up, when you, when you accumulate all those charges and you're, you know, <clears throat> a black boy from Bed-Stuy or you're, you know, like this Puerto Rican kid from, you know, Bushwick, suddenly someone's like, oh yeah, this person is just made to just enter the criminal justice system. And, you know, they get one felony charge. Um, and uh, I just looked at these kids. And one time one of the kids asked me like, why do you come here? He was like, he was like that. It's like, why do you come here? And it was my birthday. It was two days before Christmas, it was December 23rd. He said, why are you here on your birthday? He was like, Matt, he's like, don't like, don't like pity me. Why are you here? And I said, you know why I'm here? I said, because every time I come in here, I think of myself at 16 and I think of myself at 17. And there are a bunch of things that were not in your control that are the reason that you're here. And I wasn't in here with you when I was 16 or 17. And that's a fact. Because of how structurally unfair and fucked up our world is, the people I've always been most moved by are the people who now uh, use this language, but probably didn't before. But like people who are really committed to like what transformative ju justice looks like. You know, Mar Mari Makaba and Angela Davis and Bria Baker and Clint Smith and Eve Ewing. Um, and, you know, like so many, Richie Reseda, my gosh, who, who I love, I love Richie. Um, you know, what does real accountability look like? Accountability is hard and, and it's messy. And it's not as easy as just hanging up a phone or, or unfriending somebody or like throwing someone away in a prison. And I've done a lot of work with people that are lifers. I, I've spent time with people, whole afternoons with people who I know have killed people and then horrible things, unforgivable things. And I've seen human beings in front of me. I, I've shaken their hand and I've not seen a monster. Um, and I know that's something that makes people feel a lot of different things, you know? And I'm not saying it's not complicated. Um, but I look in the, in the eyes of those men and I, and I see people that remind me of me. They remind me of my dad. They remind me of Jess. They remind me of people I love, you know? <clears throat> Which is all to say that I think coming full circle with, with me sort of 
extracting myself out of some of those spaces is I think when there's a currency attached to the performance of us gathering or of me speaking, like I've done thousands of speaking things. I can talk for an hour without stumbling and get a standing ovation. That can be a dangerous thing. That's not necessarily a good thing. That can be a bad thing. That can be a really destructive thing if it's used without care and respect. And I take that very seriously. And I just, I would rather be surrounded by people that are, that are deep in the messiness of their own work as men and see this work as an extension of their own work and know that they got a long way to go and know that they'll never get there and know that they're going to mess things up in moments um, to varying degrees, hopefully not to like a unforgivable life altering degree, but you know, I'm compelled by being in community with, with those people rather than men who, I mean, won't admit that they like use the B word when they were 11 playing basketball. I'm like, I just can't trust you, dude. I like literally can't trust you. <laughs> my, my, my neck is going to be so swole at the end of this conversation from all the nodding I'm doing. Cause like, it's, I'm telling you like, just really quick, like charisma, I think that is something as men, we need to be really aware of, you know, as men, we're, we're all actors. Like it's, you realize at early age is about performance and for a lot of men, perception is reality. Like it's, that's their motto. It's like, it's more about the perception than actual reality, you know? And in, we live in a world in an age where it's all about perception and impressions, right? The thing I always say as men, we need to focus on the impact we leave on others. Like how do we leave people feeling about the world we live in? And the challenge with that is that it then, you know, well, charisma allows me to kind of create this kind of illusion of relationship or an, an illusion that we're building you know rapport or that there's respect there you know that i've and you, it allows you access before you've actually developed trust and i think that's also one of those things that um kind of relates to charisma as something that uh men are socialized to feel like they need is certainty but i think everyone feels that we need that certainty and over the pandemic just you know, going through a divorce and going into lockdown and just experiencing everything that's happened. I really, I think in, in a healthy way, relinquished a lot of my need for certainty. But what that kind of has created is actually like in some reflection, some empathy for men who, as a part of their role in relationships, especially, I think, hetero relationships, when the role when the roles are traditional as like men being the leader of the relationship that you have to be certain and right now there there is nothing there's nothing that's certain you know what what i what i would say right you know you 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 said it so well like i think especially throughout this experience of the pandemic um most of the relationships i know amazing relationships good relationships did not survive the pandemic test you know like a, a moment like that like an, a once in a generation crisis everything comes to the surface you know nothing nothing is going to stay under like everything's going to come to the surface and so in that kind of moment 
you know, as men, we are, we're, we're taught that we need to be the solution. Like my value, my identity, my entire worth, my self value is tied to being the solution. I need to be the certainty, right? And in an era of complete uncertainty, you know, where, you know, you can speak to this, Carlos, like, you know, if you're, you're a parent, your kids come to you and say, what's going on? Are we going to be okay? And you're struggling to kind of figure out, you know, March, 2020, we're all trying to like, what is going on? What's happening? So in that moment, you, you, you know, you're trying to posture and, and, and more for yourself than anyone else that you are the certainty. I am the solution. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to solve this. And so much of this is tied to as men that we feel our value isn't being the fixer. I need to fix the thing. I need to solve the thing. I need to, my father would come home from work and he didn't speak, he didn't speak very much. Uh, but one of the things he'd say, like, you know, people come home, they'd say, like, how's it going? What's going on? What's happening? My father is literally, he'd come home and he'd say, what's the problem? Like, that's, that's how he would greet us. He'd walk in the room and say, what's the problem? And we were just sitting there watching TV as kids. Like, there was nothing, there was no problem. There's nothing going on, right? But like, that was his energy, you know? And I think that, you know, as, as men, it's learning to recognize that, you know, yes, we're constantly being measured by all these different things. But if we can go from, I got this, like, I got this, go from, I got this to, I got you. Like, what do you need? How can I help? How can I be of service? How can I give? Like, what do I need to be for you in this moment? Like, what do I need to do? And it's not fix and solve. It's maybe it's just listen. Maybe just, I know you don't have the answers. Just listen, right? So it's going from being a fixer to a, being a helper, how can I help? I, I resonate with so much of that, Jeff. I definitely don't see myself as as the leader of my relationship with my partner. I think for me, I feel like I'm constantly in intention, just be like world makers together and also trying to wrestle with the deeply inadequate narratives. I think both of us may have gotten in some ways and also really great narratives we've gotten in other ways in terms of what was modeled to us by our, by our parents or other relationships that we've seen. You talked, you mentioned love languages. I mean, I think about my partner's love languages, primary and secondary, every single day of my life and want to nurture the primary and secondary every single day. You know, every day I'm thinking about, you know, how equitable our household is and in terms of the roles and the things that we're doing. Um, and, and it's, and, but when it comes to leading, I also think too, there's also a wisdom there in terms of how things are sort of broken down in terms of our home and our family, each of us have different skills and strengths. And I've also learned that, that honoring that is a really important thing. Like I spend my life deep in my feelings, building emotional literacy and thinking through and talking about emotions. And that's, you know, a role that I'm often take a leadership role in, you know, in, in the family, you know what I mean? Like my, my wife loves to build things. She loves to do handiwork around the house. It gets like angry if I do it because she like has real joy from it. But I guess both those roles are ones that are often gendered perhaps differently or in terms of stereotypes, but and some fall in line with the stereotypes. But I think it's just, for me, I actually think that me modeling a lack of certainty is a really healthy model for my kids, for people around me. I grew up in a very assertive culture and a very machismo culture the way I walk, the way I live in my body, like so many things 
I think, radiate assertiveness. And I can very easily perform assertiveness. I can easily play that character in a film like right now. I, I, I've, I've, I really try to make it a point, and I do a lot of things where I do Q&As in front of a lot of people, and I, I try to catch myself, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I have a really clean answer to this. And I try to model actually saying, you know what, I actually don't know. Or saying, you know what, I need to think about this more. Or even me saying, like, you know, I may be more informed on this than, like, maybe 51% of people doesn't mean I need to offer an opinion. That's actually not helpful because I'm in front of a lot of people here who are taking what I'm saying very seriously. And going to celebrities, that's something I think about a lot, where, where people confuse having a big platform for having a credible platform. And that's, that's something that's really important to me to like model to my, my kids and even model to like just any, anyone around me. I love that. And I also think, I think it just makes for a happier relationship for everyone when you can recognize your different skill sets and share that leadership, share, share and lead when it makes sense for the other person to do so. And that there's no pleasure that is derived from being forced into some kind of like false sense of security or knowledge or certainty. And I love listening to you describe that and also how you see it as important for your, to model for your kids too. Um, Let's talk about breaking up and healthy ways to process grief. Self-care is so feminized to the point where even, you know, like I was really like judgmental of myself as I was grieving or not grieving um, my separation at the beginning. And that got me into a lot of trouble um, with my health. Do you have advice on how men can enter into self-care and processing grief? You know, I, I think men in grief is a huge, huge conversation. Because yeah. it, like, it's not just, like we think of grief, like we go to the extreme of like losing a loved one, losing a parent, losing right. someone. But grief is something that, you know, we're grieving constantly in different ways throughout our lives. Yeah. I think there's things that we grieve and we're grieving loss, but there's also the perception of things that we thought we had and that yeah. bubbles burst. So in a relationship, I think as men, you're not just like, if you're, you've broken up, you've divorced, you're not just grieving the relationship. You're grieving this idea of who you thought you were. Like I'm grieving that, oh, I thought I was this idea of a, of a man and I'm not, I couldn't fix, I couldn't solve, I couldn't provide i couldn't be all these things like you know so i think that for men to kind of come around to that to kind of sit with again sit with this hard truth but the challenge is that you know we the way we've the social conditioning our ideas of you know of being a man part of that is that you know emotion feelings these conversations are feminized right like so here you have you know, men and young men who, you know, don't have that, that I describe it like emotional literacy is like, it's like a muscle, right? You know, the way we raise, if we label you a young girl, we throw baby dolls at you. So you're learning to take care of something before you can even take care of yourself, 
right? Like we're throwing gardening tools at you. We're throwing cook sets at you. So you're learning to nurture and provide. But what that does is it begins this journey of learning to nurture and provide. And that leads to nurturing relationships and friendships and then eventually romantic relationships. But as young men and boys, there's that moment where they take the teddy bear away from you and they replace it with a war doll. Like now it's like a, a violent video game. And that muscle is, is snipped or it starts to atrophy, that emotional muscle atrophies. So now you enter your teens, you're entering, now you're building relationships and romantic relationships. And if you're dating someone who, you know, has had their emotional literacy, they've been growing that muscle, you know, if you're, say, for example, cis hetero men, you know, you're looking to date women. These are women who are emotionally jacked. Like they've been going to the emotional gym since childhood. So now you want to enter a relationship. Like it's doomed from the start, right? So now you have this person, like the, you know, again, a cis hetero couple. The woman goes straight to the old school section of the gym, the old school weight, the clang and bang, right? Like the old school. And you're, you're in with the fancy new equipment and you're looking at everything. You're like, um, do I sit on this? Like, what do I, and you're trying to pose. You don't want to ask questions. I know what I'm doing. And so now the woman has to do the work of getting you up to speed emotionally, helping you build your muscle while trying to figure out who they are, what their needs are in the relationship and everything. So it's, it's a, it's a challenge. So, you know, I, th I think part of it is a men is a men. We need to kind of recognize that self-care is about rebuilding that emotional muscle. It's about going, you know, like, like you would go, if you want to run a marathon, you want to play, you know, play ball on the weekend with the boys, you're out of shape. You want to go back to the gym. Getting a personal trainer will help you on that journey. So it's getting a therapist to develop your emotional muscle. Like the emotional gym means going to your male friends in particular and saying, hey, let's talk about this or opening up and like working through things together, you know? Uh, and so spotting one another emotionally, that's that's part of that work. But the repetition of, of, of these things develops what I call emotional muscle memory, right? So you develop an emotional muscle. So you're going to act and react in a way that you're not going to regret later on. You know, like your knee-jerk reaction to something is like, how can I help? What can I do? What, do I, what am I missing? What am I doing wrong here? How can I, how can I grow from this? Not being like, oh, I'm just going to steamroll through and fix it. Like, self-care we think of it again it's so feminized the stereotype in our head is like oh like bubble baths and like kitten videos like no think of it like getting out of the hood of your car right like you got to get in there you got to get dirty you got to pull things apart you got to replace things you got to fix things you got to get in there and do that work and it's hard work right but it's like that's the work that we need to do and it's developing again that emotional muscle to be able to do it and it feels daunting and overwhelming and that's why you don't do it alone. So yes, that's right. So self-care, Miranda is putting in the chat community care, like self-care is community care. It's not just, it's not just looking out for yourself, but in turn, what you're doing is like, it's helping the community, right? Like helping the community grow, build, move forward. Cause yeah. the impact that we have impacts so many people. Well, I think even just like in your like very immediate community with your friends, like I was chatting with someone uh, on a date actually a few weeks ago about the lack of tradition 
that we have around breakups. And, and I was kind of complaining like, oh, well, like, you know, all you get is like your, your friends just come over one night, you, you eat ice cream and drink a bottle of wine and then it's, that's it. And that's like the conclusion. And his response was, wow, like men don't even get that. And yeah, that was a good check for me because I was like, right, I guess like you might get taken out to a bar, but even that's not time for emotional processing necessarily. Whereas, you know, like when you're sitting on a couch with wine and ice cream, that's usually what's happening. <laughs> One thing I was going to say, speaking to what you just mentioned, is I think with so many of these things, I think so much about just the power of being the first person, whether in a group of people, in any context, to just break conformity with intention with what has always been done. I had this moment recently with somebody, with somebody I didn't even know. It was like in a professional scenario. And this woman was having a really hard day and just like, was like, you know where I am today? And I was like, oh, tell me. <laughs> She's like, I, I, I like you. I'm going to just like talk to you. And she just like rattled off all these things that had happened in her day. And I thought it was like so courageous and uh, unexpected, <laughs> you know? And I'm not saying necessarily that that was the venue. Like it was great with me. It was totally fine with it. But thinking about, uh, having a moment and knowing the power of being a man among your guy friends and saying, I'm really sad. Like naming an emotion that you, you've, I've never heard, I've never been in a group of guy friends that I never heard a person sit here with other guys and say, I'm sad. I don't know if you've ever had that moment, Jeff. I can't think of one in my entire life. And I'm around some pretty radical men. I've never had one word. Somebody like, you know, I'm really sad. I'm really scared. I'm really unsure. I feel you know what I mean? Like, and I think, like we said, pushing against certainty, pushing against the emotional illiteracy that's been so practiced and so reinforced over our lives. I think that to me is how we unlock each other. That to me is a self-care that's modeled toward community care. And I think about that a lot. You know, it's like me watching Encanto with my kids and like, just like sobbing and, and, you know, my son is like, Poppy, are you okay? And I was like, yes. And I was like, do you know why I'm crying? And he's like, because it's beautiful. And I was like, yes, because it's beautiful. This is the thing. Like, I just, just quickly to add on that, like, I think the problem is as men, like you talked about unlocking it for one another, you know? But the reality is that the prisons that we put ourselves in emotionally, like the door is already unlocked. Right. It's kind of like what you're saying is like it's helping us like recognize that the door has always been open. You've put yourself in there, you know, and one of the hardest things is, you know, we, we live in a world where people look out the window and can criticize everyone and everything. And like we have these movements of change where we hold up mirrors to people. And this is kind of going back to male feminists, like holding up the mirror saying, look how horrible you are and look how much you need to change. And what we need to do is hold that mirror at an angle and look at ourselves and be like, here's what I'm seeing that I need to change. I'm going to model that. Like I'm, I'm trying to not to uh, for, for status or for, for clout, but just like I'm trying to model this in real time because I need a model. So I, I want to help you and help me figure it out at the same time. You know, it's like, I always say you need to be the lesson in action, you know, like that's the goal. It's getting late. Do you both have time for one more? question or should we go into wrap up yeah let's go 
Okay, so as we were prepping for this episode, Jeff was sharing all of these amazing ideas of things that he wanted to talk about. Um, and I'm wondering if we could get into this last one. And and honestly, the reason I'm asking you to say this is because you wrote these words, but also because it's something that like I need to hear just said out loud. Yeah, as men, it's it's recognizing that women have always had our backs, you know, and what women and gender diverse people, what they've been longing for is for us to have their backs. You know, like it's, again, it goes back to, I got you. I love how you said that, Jeff, but I, you know, I think a lot about too, this idea of what it means to have women and girls and gender diverse people's backs. And I think there is something that is so seductive about the grandiose moment. You know, like I always, uh, a lot of my friends give me crap because I criticize like those like one or two like cringy lines in like every Bruno Mars song where I'm like, oh, we could, we could have taken one more draft of that. No, no offense to Bruno Mars. I got love for you, Bruno. But you know, it's like, I would put my hand on a blade for you or like throw myself in front of a train for you. And, and like, there's a lot of other words we could rhyme there. I jokingly said, like one of the times I heard the song when I was with my friends, I was like, but will you like mop the hole downstairs for you? Will you like, you know, wash the dishes and clean the counter for you? Um, will you like carry the 50 pound bags of soil to the backyard for you? Um, Will you like show up every single day on time or early to pick up the kid from daycare for you? You know, and I think about, you know, I think about like, you know, we spent 14 months in a house with the four of us, me and my partner, my son, my daughter, um, you know, for 11 of those months, I was daycare for my son 24 hours a day. My wife was like working full time and basically the teacher of our daughter in virtual schooling, there will be no trophies or medals or fellowships or grants given out for what we did. I didn't Instagram any of it. I didn't write about it. I probably never will. This is like probably the first time I've like mentioned it out loud. That's what love looks like. You know what I mean? And that's what like showing up for people look like. And it's not sexy and it's not cute and it's exhausting and it's, it's painful and it's fulfilling and it's relentless and it's, um, you know, it's, it's all the emotions put together. And also every day I was like, I am committing to this every day. And it makes me think about what, what that director I mentioned before, bringing it full circle, Tamela Woodard, who directed me, me and helped co-conceived men up the solo play with me in 2007, ended up marrying Whitney and I in 2013. She was our officiant. Um, and I remember I asked her, you know, she's in an amazing marriage with her partner, Mike. And I was like, how, how, do, how do you all stay married for a lifetime? And she's like, oh, no, you definitely don't marry someone for a lifetime. She's like, that's impossible. Don't plan to marry someone for a lifetime. You'll fail. And I was like, okay. She goes, you marry your partner for one day. Today. Hmm. And then tomorrow you marry them today. And then the next day you marry them today. And when I think of certainty, 
I stick to the things I'm 100% certain about. And when my son or daughter are having a hard day, I look them in the eyes and I say, listen, as long as I'm on this earth, I will never leave you. I will show up every day. I will always be here, no matter what. I will love you always. I will show up for you always. There's nothing you can do that will ever have me not love you. You know? And with all the people I love, whether it's Whitney or someone else, my friends and the people I love most know, they know like, I got you, as Jeff says, I got you always forever. There's a lot of things I'm not certain about, but that is one thing that I know. Well, little bees, there you have it. I think that's the season two opener with a mic drop. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Jeff and Carlos, whom I love for giving me their evening to record this episode. Thank you also to my first five patrons, Bailey, Danielle, Cody, Nadine, Deanna. You rock my world. Your support means everything to me and you each play a unique role in why I'm continuing to make this podcast. If you want to become a Patreon member, check out the link in the show notes. For $5 a month, if you think this podcast is worth a buck 25 an episode, you get shout outs in the recordings and access to my close friends list. For $10 a month, you get those benefits plus exclusive unreleased content from my interviews. And for $25 a month, you get all of that plus two tickets to the finale live recording and I'll buy you a shot. We can maybe even make them body shots. We'll get, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see how the night goes. Credit for my opening music goes to singer-songwriter Posey. Credit for writing, production, editing, mixing, it all goes to me, your host, Miranda. Next episode, I'm interviewing Christian Lafazanos, a celebrant or officiant and ceremony guide about divorce ceremonies and all the liberated ways we can hold space for relationship transitions. In between episodes, join the growing community of D's, all sizes welcome, on Patreon or on Instagram at Big D Pod. I'd love to hear what you thought about this episode. It is so motivating for me to hear your feedback, read your reviews, and of course, get those five-star ratings. Thanks to all my friends who believed I could and can, so I did and I do.